0: This is Stories of Win, where we showcase amazing women in neuroscience. We chat with them about their research, their unique journeys through academia, and what drives their passion for studying the brain. Here is one of their stories. Hi everyone, this is Margarida from Stories of Win, and I have the pleasure today of interviewing Dr. Ana Maria Jaksic. Dr. Ana Maria is a principal investigator at École Polytechnique Federale de Lausanne in Switzerland, And her lab's mission is to explore and map natural genetic and adaptive variation of cognition and related neuronal traits thank you so much for letting me interview you today it's a great pleasure to have you thank you for inviting me here it's also a pleasure to be a part of this interview (laughs) yes it's a great pleasure to have you and we usually like starting the interview by asking um, how did you first become interested in neuroscience? But actually, your career to neuroscience is uh, quite interesting. And so before we get to there, I want to ask you, when did you first became interested in science as a whole?
1: Well, I guess this, this must have been like during um, elementary school. When I was maybe like eight or nine, I enrolled like this extracurricular class um, in astronomy. It was uh, a thing that everybody went to. We were studying or trying to kind of figure out how the universe works. And we had like these small science competitions. And this is probably the the first time in my life where I actually had like the spark for for science. Maybe I didn't know it at that point, but maybe that's the the first time when I was kind of um, um, fascinated by, by the universe itself. Um, and then later on, I don't know, as, as I grew older, I, um, I stopped thinking about astronomy that much, but I got more interested in biology as I started taking biology classes during the elementary school, um, education. And at some point uh, in my life, because my, Parents actually have their own uh, business, their own company. They wanted me to take over this uh, company at some point in my life. So they wanted me to study economics. And I actually went to a vocational high school for econom- economists um, um, or economy. And I really hated it. <laughs> I really did not like <laughs> anything that goes, goes with economy. Uh, And so I started kind of pivoting after vocational high school. I wanted to uh, go to, um, to, to university and to study anything that has to do with biology. I wanted to be a veterinarian at some point or a marine biologist. But because I went to this economics high school, vocational high school, I didn't have the proper background to enroll to a veterinary school. So... I decided, okay, well, maybe I'm not going to be a veterinarian, but I could be a farmer. So my uncle has a, a dairy farm or like a meat and dairy farm. And I really enjoyed working, like visiting him and kind of uh, hanging out with him and, uh, the the livestock that he had. And this was like really, really interesting for me. So I had like this very specific plan that I'm gonna become a farmer, I'm gonna have a dairy farm. And so the perfect study course that I took for for this particular purpose was animal sciences at the Faculty of Agriculture um, at University of Zagreb. So I'm originally born and raised in Zagreb. And so I started studying animal sciences And there I kind of uh, realized that most of the, you know, uh, modern farming is based on genetics, like quantitative, um, quantitative genetics and um, cattle breeding, uh, figuring out the pedigrees of cows, sheep, or whatever, (laughs) and and how to create the, the best producing cow and how to select for them and so on. And I got super interested in genetics. I really loved it. Um, so I, um uh, decided to go on with my studies there and instead of like specializing for like dairy farming or something like this, I went to, um, a master's study. So a master's degree for animal genetics and breeding. And this was like full blown genetics, population genetics, quantitative genetics, uh, Selection uh, of all all sorts of traits in uh, in in livestock in domestic animals, and I think at that point uh, one of my professors said that I'm like really good at this and I should probably consider you know doing a PhD and I was like why would I do a PhD I want to be a farmer but then I got involved in a couple of like science projects in in his lab and in another lab. um, studying like bee behavior or something like this. This was maybe like the first, uh, first, first uh, um, experience with behaviors or anything nearly resembling neuroscience. But at that point, I had no idea <laughs> that it's going to lead to this point. And um, and so yeah, I took I took my professor's advice and I started looking for PhD programs to enroll. And then I enrolled to a PhD program in um, in Vienna, in Austria, at the Veterinary Medicine University in Vienna. So I kind of took a very roundabout way to getting into veterinary medicine in the, in the end. But I I'd never studied veterinary medicine there. I actually, uh, I was uh, doing my PhD at the Institute for Population Genetics in uh, Christian Schlotter's Schlatter, lab. And... There we used experimental evolution uh, to study adaptation of fruit flies to um, different temperature conditions, so high temperatures or low temperatures. And still had nothing to do with neuroscience at all. And I, I, I might have mentioned this to you before we started the interview, but I actually never took a single actual class of neuroscience. <laughs> to this day myself but um, yeah during this whole um, uh, experiment with flies adapting to high and low temperatures we were expecting all sorts of things to evolve uh, in these populations Um, but one thing I never expected to to evolve at high or low temperatures was the brain of the flies which ended up being like really important trait that has to change its uh, so really important tissue that has to change its overall expression profile to accommodate high or low temperatures. And that's how I actually started working on brains, literally on brains. Um, And I started uh, becoming very interested in, in fly neuroscience, like how, um, how their brain actually works, uh, the, the neurocircuitry and all sorts of different uh, subpopulations of neurons that might be, might have an adaptive advantage at different environments. And kind of it was kind of like a very um, empirical or exploratory path to neuroscience it kind of I did an experiment and it led me to a neuronal trait um, and that was probably how I ended up uh, working on ne- neuroscience um, topics in the first in the first place and so we figured out that um, dopaminergic neurons are probably very important for adaptation to temperatures in flies and Then i got very interested in like dopamine because i mean it's a really cool neurotransmitter when you think about it it's very easy to get hooked on it one way or another and uh and so um i thought okay let's see how variable this neurotransmitter is how variable its expression is in natural populations because i was throughout this whole time i was always very much interested in Um, genetic variation and phenotypic variation that we find in in populations and how we can use them to select different traits. And so I thought, okay, if we can select dopaminergic um, system to be up or down regulated in our experimental populations, we could potentially do this with other neuronal traits in another environmental setting. And that's exactly what we're doing right now in my lab. So (laughs) that's the story.
0: Wow, that was a really complete overview of uh, your career. Thank you so much for sharing that. And yeah, I, I guess neuroscience found the way to you and it's it's really interesting um, how you got into it. And um, before, I, I will ask you a bit more about your lab, but before that, so you, you did your PhD in the um, neuronal, uh, neuronal dopamine signaling. And then uh, what about your postdoc and uh, what was the topic of your postdoc?
1: Yeah, so after my PhD, I did a um, a very short postdoc. It was supposed to be, yeah, it can be a bit longer, but then I got the PI job <laughs> in Lausanne that I couldn't I couldn't uh, refuse. And uh, so I went to Andy Clark's lab at Cornell University in the U.S. And there, the plan was to look at dopaminergic signaling and to look how variable it is across different genotypes of flies. So. What we did there, we screened through uh, around 200 different uh, genotypes of flies to see how they react to um, a kind of pharmacological perturbations uh, of, of dopamine, um, kind of systemic perturbations, but hopefully mostly in the brain. So we would give flies drugs that upregulate or downregulate uh, production of dopamine in the brain and then look at what... what Effects can we see in their locomotor behavior? And since we were looking at this in uh, hundreds of different uh, genotypes, we could actually pick apart uh, which genotypes are more susceptible to high or low dopamine uh, levels and, um, and figure out what is the kind of genetic basis of this susceptibility to dopamine-altering drugs. Uh, something like this this is a really really fun time I really loved uh, being at Cornell and uh, working on this project and I really loved working with Andy he's a fantastic supervisor as well so yeah so that's that's my postdoc (laughs) experience.
0: Cool Cool. and then at some point you uh, um, got the Eliezer scholarship and uh, became a group leader just soon after starting uh, your postdoc how was the transition for you?
1: Yeah, it was a very kind of like abrupt transition. I mean, as I, as I mentioned, I was supposed to stay with uh, Andy in his lab for at least like three years. That was the initial plan to kind of build this whole big project on genetic diversity of dopamine. And then I think somebody, I'm not even sure who sent me this email, but somebody sent me the, an email with the call for the LCR, uh applications. And it looked just like too good to be true. (laughs) Like you get to start your own lab right after your PhD. And it looked super interesting. And I had this like big idea that I've been kind of uh, keeping, you know, in the back of my mind for a long time. And I thought, okay, if I ever become a PI, this is what I want to do. And so I decided, okay, let's let's write this like small research proposal. Let's evolve brains in an experimental evolution setting. I mean, it's a like a high risk, high gain thing, but also kind of in this Alistair uh, application, they were looking for something like that. So I was like, what the hell? Let's try it. So let's see if people like this idea. And then, yeah, people ended up liking it a lot. Um, I went to interview. Um, the interview went okay, I guess, and I got the job. So kind of like, over, oh yeah, within a single day after I got the the notif- like after I got notified that I actually got offered the position, I was like, oh my god, what am I gonna do now? I actually now have to do this. I have to tell Andy I'm leaving, <laughs> and yeah, and have to start a lab. So it was like a very, um, very chaotic chaotic part of my life and especially the whole start of the lab later on that was um, pretty intense since it was the year 2020 and we all know how that went <laughs> and yeah so that's um that's kind of um, that's kind of how I experienced it as a very like abrupt chaotic but super exciting thing that happened. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and it it sounds like a great opportunity for um, people like you that want also to do very bold research and uh, interdisciplinary. And so can you tell us a bit more about uh, your lab? Because it's really uh, a merge of different fields, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. So the the whole idea was to uh, use experimental evolution to try and evolve higher cognitive ability in flies and this kind of uh, on its own to me always sounds a little bit sci-fi but actually uh, technically it's it, it's even more complicated than than it sounds because um, to select a complex trait such as cognition in a in an animal such as a fruit fly is really tricky because you have to like First, define what cognition really is, and then actually screen for it in every single individual in a population in some sort of a super high throughput way. And you have to do this over and over again, every single generation, continuously, with no stopping, no end, and for a very, very uh, high number of individuals. Um, So it's pretty much what we're aiming for right now is to screen at least 1,500 flies in a behavioral setting per day, every day, for the, oh, wow. the, the coming years, I guess. So this challenge, this is like a really specific challenge that like just having a lot of people screening for flies is not even enough. So we kind of pivoted and turned like the whole labs uh, focus on trying to automate this uh, screening, behavioral screening for, for complex traits, such as learning. Um, in flies and for this we had to actually implement like a whole robotics setup so um, in my lab there's a PhD student who is in charge of uh, setting up robots that actually picks up individual flies places them in behavioral arenas screens for their behavior and then selects Top 90% best performing flies and it does that in a loop over and over again so there's no input from the human part except for providing the flies to the robot and um, this this is a like a, technically engineering wise is a really uh, really cha- challenging uh, challenging project but erida is really great at it. He seems to be doing really well with it. Super happy that I have uh, him and all the other students in the lab. They're super talented. So they're kind of saving me every every day, pretty much with this project. And um, yeah, so one part of my lab is kind of uh, engineering oriented, trying to figure out robotics and fly handling and high throughput phenotyping. And on the other hand, we are also... Uh, trying to be geneticists and um, systems biologists, so trying to figure out how evolution works, how what is the underlying genetic basis of the traits that we're interested in. So there is um, uh, another PhD student, Samuel Bourja, uh, and uh, he is uh, interested in, uh, in fly brain morphology, and he's trying to figure out if we select really for learning ability, will we change the... The structure of the of the brain itself so he's using very fancy techniques like micro ct scanning and topological data analysis to figure out how uh, variable the, um, the brain topology is in in, in, fly, in natural fly populations and how much variation is there to to actually select uh, a select one and then there's like another really kind of like an offshoot from neuroscience uh, topic in my lab. Uh, so uh, the third PhD student, Manon Pribi, she is working on coral conservation genetics. So it has nothing to do with neuroscience, but we are actually at our core, we're evolutionary biology lab, interested mostly in neuros- neuro- neurobiology phenotypes or uh, neuronal phenotypes. But in the, her particular project where we kind of like the whole lab is very much interested in um, conservation of nature and the whole, um, uh, you know, uh, fight against the global climate change and sustainability and making our lab green. So um, her project is kind of like perfectly aligned with this sort of uh, idea. So she's working on um Uh, it's called Seascape Genomics, where she's trying to map how genotypes are distributed across different coral reefs and which corals are um, uh, less susceptible to bleaching uh, based on their genotypes. So the the main idea is to find genotypes that are susceptible to uh, all sorts of things that come with the global climate change and that cause coral Coral bleaching, and if we figure out what these genotypes are, we might have a chance to um, transplant these genotypes uh, along the parts of the coral reef where bleaching has been highly progressive, and um, in, in this way, we're uh, gonna try to like save at least partially or slow down the the dying of the coral reefs. So. That's the third kind of like uh, interest of my lab. So it's very diverse. Um, People are interested in very different things, but we kind of all um, converge to this one topic, which is genetics and natural genetic variation of all sorts of traits in populations.
0: Great. That was a great overview. And uh, it kind of uh, segments into one of the other things I wanted to ask you because you were speaking about... um, sustainability and uh, one of the things that i found interesting is that on your lab's website you have like two pages one on lab philosophy and one on outreach and sustainability and i thought that was um, really cool and i kind of wanted to ask you um what are um what is uh, your style as a mentor and also what are a bit your missions outside of science progress by itself yeah <laughs>
1: Well, um, I guess I'm still kind of uh, developing my style as a PI, I guess. I've uh, had this job for, yeah, two, two years and a little, bit, yeah, a little bit more than two years now. Um, but I, I kind of um, like to keep uh, the atmosphere in the lab, like very relaxed and um, super open to new, like to pivoting t- towards new kind of directions. Um, and I feel like uh, every PhD student should have like a, a big um, opportunity, like as large opportunity as possible to explore their own wants and needs in, in science. So I'm kind of trying to let people do things that they really are most passionate about, because I feel this is how you get uh, the best possible science. If, if you're passionate about it, things are going to happen and it's going to be great. So that's my current, my current um, um point of view at how how to run a lab. You just let people do their best, and things are gonna happen. I <laughs> guess. Not sure if it's like sustainable long term. Now when the lab is really small, it's great because I mean I have I get get the chance to talk to everyone almost every day, so it's kind of easy to to manage all sorts of uh, like offshoot directions. Uh, in the lab, but yeah we 'll see when the lab starts growing how that 's going to work out um, and in terms of like sustainability i think it's it 's really important nowadays uh, well it was supposed to be important all the time, but even more so nowadays to kind of be aware of the footprint that we leave as scientists as as research groups uh, on our planet i mean the amount just the amount of plastic that we produce and we have to use because of all sorts of, you know, reproducibility and um, good lab practices, the the, the amount of plastic that we have to use is just, just, yes, (laughs) enormous, I think, really saddening sometimes. So we're always trying to figure out a way to kind of decrease this footprint and to decrease our carbon footprint in general as a lab. And so we're always trying to kind of innovate a little bit, try to modify our experiments to the extent that it kind of still lets us do our job, but um, but yeah, at least it's not destroying the the,
0: the nature as much.
1: So <laughs> there's yeah, there's that.
0: Okay, yeah, that's that's super cool that you're able to also think about those things uh, while uh, doing research, and I think we all should be more aware of our carbon f- footprint in the lab as well. And um, uh, I mean, uh, I guess you're still quite young to being a PI and a, a mentor, but you, I'm sure you have a, a lot of things that uh, that have been a challenge or even before you you were a group leader. Do you, would you like to share a challenge that you faced in your career?
1: Yeah, I mean, um, just the, the, the whole setting up the lab, set of issues <laughs> that come with setting up a lab. I think every single PI has gone through it and we all know how challenging this this um, is or was. Um, that was probably the, the most difficult part for me, like um, setting up the lab during COVID times, that's on top of it, but in general, like so setting up the lab is a a very weird experience because when you start your own lab, you go from an environment where you're like a part of this big group, a part of this big lab. Everything that you do um, is kind of really well supported because um, everything you need is already set up in the lab. Um, If you have a question, there's a ton of people around you that you can ask other PhD students or postdocs, your PI. But when you start your own lab, you're kind of a, it's kind of a weird situation. You you go to your lab space, which is completely empty. There's like empty benches, empty desks, just chairs and empty cupboards. And now you're supposed to like do something with it that you've never done in your life, and you're like completely alone because at that point you don't have anybody hired in your lab yet. You don't have Any like you have nothing at this point so just this uh uh, this feeling of like complete emptiness and starting from very very scratch is was like for me it was very scary like the first couple of months where i i literally had no idea what i'm supposed to do and how and and you kind of have to figure it out um, as you go that was that was uh, pretty challenging, I have to say. It all worked out great in the end, I guess. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it was like a really daunting experience. I think it was pretty scary. Um, that that was, I think, one of the biggest challenge, uh, challenges that I've experienced with like becoming a PI. And then this one point when you hire the first, your you know your first PhD student who's going to join your lab. And then it kind of hits you. Oh, my God, this is real now. Like this person is going to, you know, work in my lab now on a project. And now I'm responsible not only for my own career, but for their career as well. And now really everything has to work. Like, And then you start thinking, oh, maybe I shouldn't take this many risks. (laughs) Maybe I should have like safety projects and (laughs) things like that just in case. Because it's no longer only you at stake. So you cannot be really as bold as you want to be because it's not just you it's like other people's lives and careers and this this was um yeah a very specific feeling that i think you never have as a phd student or a postdoc even if you mentor um, you know other phd students or master's students um, even if you run projects independently uh, it's it's not the same feeling as being responsible for people in the lab, so I think that's that's uh, one big challenge um, that was scary at the beginning, but now I kind of uh, I, I'm more comfortable with this, uh, especially because my lab is so great, so <laughs> I feel like nothing can go wrong. <laughs> Everybody's doing so well and yeah,
0: so that's kind of nice that's that's great to hear. and so. Um, I guess now you're focused on the projects that uh, you've started as a lab and with your PhD students but if uh, you were to think a bit uh, on longer run like say in the next five years what would you like to explore? Are, are there any new paths you'd like to take? Or, or... Oh yeah <laughs> I don't know I
1: think just making these projects work and run for the next years that would be fantastic I mean my big plan is to set up these so once these um, uh, evolution experiments that, that we have that are supposed to select for cognitive behaviors of some sort, if they really work out well in the first 10, 20, 30, 50 generations of fly flies' lives in the next couple of years, if they really work out, I, my, my major plan is to keep them running as long as we can and see how far we can push these populations um like how much uh, smarter the flies can be <laughs> how much recombination can they sustain <laughs> for becoming you know like um highly cognitive animals i mean i'm sure they're never going to be super highly cognitive but at least uh, seeing what the limit is and how their brains and their behavior is going to evolve i think that's going to be super interesting and really exciting and that's a very long term experiment as well so that, that's i mean I, I think i already know what i want to do in the next uh, 5 to 10 years and this is like run this experiment until 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 we can and then figure out like how can we actually use the knowledge that we gain from such experiments for other things like if i if i if i look like very long into the, or very far into the future, I'm kind of hoping that what we learn about how fly brains are getting reorganized uh, using evolutionary pressures like selection for learning ability, if we figure out how they're actually being reorganized in a, in a structural way, like how do their synapses uh, or synaptic connections change, how their circuitry changes over the course of evolution, um, this Particular knowledge, I think, should be useful uh, in some way in figuring out how to make artificial systems that actually use this sort of structure and how how to optimize artificial um, artificial systems like artificial intelligence or neural neural nets and see whether we can translate um, these ideas into something that is completely non biological. So that's that's my big <laughs> big dream, but how how possible or yeah feasible will this be? And yeah, we'll see. I think experiments will tell us, the future will tell us.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I mean, it sounds like a great plan and really that it will continue to be an interdisciplinary project and that will, I think, not only neuroscience, but also, as you said, artificial intelligence can gain a lot from me. So I, I hope to hear uh, more about it in the future. And yeah, um, I think, uh, well, I think we've overviewed a a lot of things in your career and uh, in your group as well. So I think I want to ask you a bit of a different question, maybe more personal, which is um, uh, if you're not in the lab, what are you doing? What do you like to do when you're in your time out?
1: Yeah, so um, I have two really nice uh, dogs at home. I have two standard poodles that I usually spend my time, time with when I'm not in the lab. And I'm always trying to, you know, I'm trying to start new hobbies all the time. I'm always interested in different things. So I tried painting. I recently tried to start relearning again, playing the piano. This is really not going well for me. Like I never have enough time to actually play. (laughs) So I'm really not, not... Not good at it but so then recently i decided that i'm gonna build a really nice aquarium and do aquascaping that's my new potential future hobby <laughs> i'm trying to get into um that's that's kind of what i'm trying uh, trying out um but i i kind of have like very Limited attention span. I <laughs> I start one hobby and then switch to another one and another one. So I like to try out different things like that. Um, and of course, like my family life, I I have a partner who uh, who has been following me throughout my whole career since I left uh, Croatia since I started my PhD, uh, pretty much. So. Ivan is a big big part of my my life. Uh, when I'm not in the lab, I'm with him and even when I'm in, in the lab, <laughs> I, I kind of always uh, ask him to uh, keep asking him to help us out with mechatronics and electronics part of our experiments. That's kind of his background. <laughs> so, yeah, that's uh, that's uh, kind of a short summary of my private life, hobbies that I jump to and from. Um, yeah my family so my partner and my two dogs and yeah that's that's pretty much it
0: (laughs) that's really cool thank you for sharing that okay yeah so I I think we are um, already um, in um, getting to the end of the podcast so thank you so much for having the time to talk to me today it was a great pleasure and it's really cool to see uh, different people Uh, working in neuroscience not just people that you did pure neuroscience from the start but also people that are really pushing the boundaries of neuroscience so thank you so much
1: thank you very much for this uh, really lovely chat i really enjoyed it and thank you again for uh, inviting me for this interview it's
0: really fun thanks